Well, I want to thank Dan for starting our, <clears throat> our new series off last week. I was really looking forward to that. We got home from PalCon, Pastors and Leaders Conference, and tag you're it. So thank you, Dan, for last week uh, introducing our, our, our new series, The Promised Land. I want to jump in this morning right in. Um, one of the best recognized descriptions of the land of Israel um, is a land flowing with milk and honey, right? We, we catch that as we read scripture. Um, the land was promised to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. We looked at that last week. The land of Canaan was reserved um, by God for his people, for the nation of Israel to grow and to thrive, but only if, only if they followed his instructions. I don't even think about that. If they held up their end of the covenant and they obeyed God, but they often failed at this, right? We know this. They failed fairly regularly, uh, which explains why there were so many invaders in the promised land. It was their land. And why several times God said, all right, out of the pool, party's over. <laughs> it's not your land anymore. I'm going to take it back. You guys, you haven't, you, you've just messed everything up. So this land flowing with milk and honey, as we read earlier, is offered as the response of a faithful and loving God to the bondage of slavery and sin in Egypt. God saves them, leads them out of Egypt to the land he promised Abraham. And when Moses was at the burning bush, Jesus, or God told him this. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and about their sufferings. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. I love that, that phrase there. Um, in Hebrew, the word Egypt actually means narrow place. So God is literally, and, and, and again, you would have heard this. God is saying, look, you've been in this narrow, horrible existence, but I'm going to bring you out into this wide open and spacious, spacious land. In other words, a life of slavery is, is just, it's a horrible life, it's oppressive, and it's constrictive. And then land of flowing with milk and honey. Jewish tradition says that the milk comes from the goats, right? We, we, kind, of, we kind of know that. Um, for a pastoral people, which they were, um, they weren't necessarily farmers, they, they were herders. Um, this is indeed, this is, this is an incredible, incredibly inviting invitation Right? An incredible description of a land. If you're a sheep herder, a land flowing with milk and honey says something to you as a sheep herder. Pastoral people, goats were a sign of wealth. They had milk. They gave meat. They were incredibly prolific. Right? Every year you got a whole new batch of goats. And honey flows from both the wild fig and from wild beehives. The fig honey isn't really honey. It's just an incredibly thick, syrupy kind of thing, but it was something that they accessed and used to sweeten their foods. Um, so it's very, very surprising then that in the land of milk and honey, in the land of the good shepherd, right, the sheep and, and all of that from the book of John and the Jewish sages, not a whole lot of time after the life of Jesus Christ, they instituted a ban on the raising of small livestock, sheep, and goats in the land of Israel, at least in the, in the settled areas. And that, that, that's kind of weird, right? The land of Israel, we, we bring in our sheep, we do the pastoral meal, we, we, you know, and they're not allowed to have sheep or goats. It's very weird. Here's the reason for the ban. 
It was due to the idea of settling the land, right? Settling the land is a Jewish idea, of an idea in a sustainable manner for Jews for all time, right? So they, they were very into sustainability. Although very prolific for the owners, sheep and goats are incredibly destructive to fields and gardens and to just about anything you leave out because they will eat anything and everything. So if you're a farmer, and this is the American West, this is throughout all civilization, farmers hate herders. Herders hate farmers. They don't get along very well, right? They just, they don't. The sheep, the goats, they get into the garden, they eat the, the crops, then the farmers set out poison to kill the sheep. It's just a crazy thing, right? We all know about this. Now, what I'm suggesting is that our understanding of a land flowing with milk and honey just needs to be expanded just a little bit. Not changed necessarily, but I want to expand before I really launch into what I want to say this morning of our understanding of this, this idea of a land flowing with milk and honey. Because when we take a deeper dive into this milk and honey, we're going to discover an indispensable key to accessing the promised land. And not just accessing the promised land, because we're going to find out the Israelites got the promised land. They inherited it, but they never got what God intended. Let me say that again. They entered the promised land. They inherited the promised land. They lived in the promised land, but they never actually got what God intended. We're going to come to that in just a little bit here. <clears throat> All right, so um, here's the first odd thing about the phrase... Um, a land flowing with milk and honey. Biblically speaking, ancient Israel isn't the only land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know if you were aware of this. In fact, Egypt is flowing with milk and honey. This is from Numbers chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Uh, the leaders are complaining to Moses. They, they've, they've, got, they've, they've exited. <laughs> they've crossed the Red Sea, and they're wandering around in the desert, and the people are getting upset. And they say to Moses, isn't it enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Like, wait a minute, I thought that was God's land with Egypt. To kill us in the wilderness, and now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. I want you to recognize as I move through this message, those are two different things going on. Right? Fields and vineyards and milk and honey. Two separate things going on here, right? Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Right? They're claiming that Moses has taken them away from a land flowing with milk and honey. So what is what's going on with that? Here's here's the clue lies with the Joseph. Right? Remember Joseph, the, the twelve sons of Jacob? Uh, he gets sold into slavery by his horrible, horrible brothers, and he ends up being a powerful person in Egypt, and he can read, uh, interpret uh, dreams and visions, and the Pharaoh had a vision that there would be uh, a, a, a famine, and so Joseph organizes, and during the famine, they got tons of, tons of food when everyone else is starving, so Joseph invites his brothers up, down, if you look at a map, down from Canaan um, to get, get some food, right? And, and here's, here's, here's what happens. Joseph gives instructions to his brothers, right, when they come down to Egypt. The fact that the herds are destructive to farmers was used by Joseph to keep his brothers and their families away from the flesh pots of the Egyptian cities. Listen to this. This is from Genesis chapter 46, verses... 31 through 33. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, right? This is an incredibly important thing for Joseph to say. 
The men are shepherds. They tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks, right? He's just adding on. He's making sure Pharaoh gets the idea that we're bringing in a bunch of sheep, and you're farmers. Joseph has something in mind here, right? Brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our father did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Right? So the land of flowing with milk and honey is wild land. It's, it's untended by man. Man hasn't messed it up yet. It, it exists by the hand of God. Right? Land flowing with milk and honey. Which leads us to a second odd thing about the biblical idea, the term, the phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's usually portrayed as a good thing. Right? We, we, anything in, in modern language will we'll use that biblical phrase to talk about something good. Um, but it can also represent a bad thing. Well, not necessarily a bad thing, but it can bring on bad things. Okay? That's the way I think of it. Unfortunate developments. Right, that, that's the word I use here. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 31. This is the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. The, 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 the Israelites have wandered around for 40 years. The generation that didn't trust God, that didn't want to take from God's hand what God offers, the ones that wanted to figure out a way that they could do it on their own, right? That generation had died, and now the younger generation, right, is coming up. And, and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, um, Moses is telling this younger generation, look, don't do what your parents did. Right? you got a whole new start here. And so he gives them a couple big, long speeches. Deuteronomy, duo, duo, two, two, two big, long speeches. Um, and at the very end, he, he teaches them a song. And, he, and he's, he's telling the Israelites, I want you to teach your children. I want you to sing this song all the time. It's a horrible song. It's horrible. It's a horrible song, but I want you to learn it. I want you to sing it all the time because it's going to remind you just how easy it is to turn a blessing into a curse. Because that's what happened with the land flowing with milk and honey. That was the blessing. But the Israelites, they messed it up. <laughs> they messed it up completely. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 19 and 20. Moses is telling them, again, teaching the Israelites to remember just how easy it would be to mess things up. He says this, Now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. He knows they're going to be stiff-necked, right? He knows them. And he knows they're going to blow everything. He's like, I don't want this on my name. Right? This is going to be on you all. I did everything I'm supposed to do. Right? So when I have brought them, this is God speaking through Moses. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. And again, Moses speaks elsewhere of a land with houses that they didn't build, drinking water from wells that they didn't dig. Right? So when all of this, when I've given you all of this, everything that you need from the Father's hand, the land I promise on oath, oath to their ancestors. And when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when this eventually happens, and it does, right? We, we know that. They, it's like Moses was a seer, like a, a prophet at this point. He's looking down through the ages, and he's saying... Like, we're about to enter the promised land, but y'all are going to blow it. <laughs> but your God is a good God. Don't stop trusting him. Don't stop trusting him. So when this eventually does happen, the prophet Isaiah, a couple hundred years later, he describes a land that had become 
Right? It was no longer a land flowing with milk and honey. It had become an agricultural land. It was settled, it was wealthy, and it was contemptuous of any claim that God might have on the entire enterprise. Like literally the people like at the Tower of Babel, God, we don't need you. We're going to build a name for ourselves. Right? This is about us. We got this. We don't need you. Isaiah describes what it will look like then in that day of judgment by Assyria. So what I'm about to describe is bad. It's a land that has been wrecked. All right? Now notice the abundance of milk and honey. Right? Isaiah chapter 7. In that day, a person will keep alive young cow and two goats in that day of destruction. Right? When everything's been destroyed. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, they will be, there will be curds to eat. There will be nothing else. There will be nothing else. Curds to eat. And all who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with a bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. Why a bow and arrow? Because wild animals have come back into the land, where civilization had changed out the lions and the bears. And yes, there were lions and bears. Read your Old Testament. Plenty of lions and bears. Well, when all the people are carted off to Assyria, the place becomes a land flowing with milk and honey, a wild untamed, God-fed land again. Verse 25, As for the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and the thorns. They will become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run, flowing with milk and honey. When Israel was defeated and carried off as prisoners, the cultivated land was left unattended, right? When this occurs, the vineyards, the crops are overrun with briars, thorns, other wild flowers, seeds, weeds, all that kind of stuff, in turn, allows for increased grazing for milk-producing animals and an increase in wild honey, right? Makes sense? So here, and here's the point of all this, that the phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, describes areas untended by man and covered in wild vegetation, not by man's hand, but by God's hand. Right? In, the, in the term, in fact, flowing with milk and honey, the, the, Egyptian, or excuse me, the Hebrew word zav right, explains this idea. Zav, it only occurs um, when talking about human blood flowing, things like that, or a flowing forth caused by miraculous power. Right? Ancient Israel is an incredibly hard land. It can only blossom and flourish under the right conditions, and the right conditions are rain. Right? The only rain that the ancient Holy Land gets is rain from above. Right? So, so throughout the ages, people looked at this land and kind of, kind of a holy land, right? Because the only nourishment it gets, gets from above, right? Rivers aren't a big deal in the holy land. Not many rivers are mentioned at all except way up in Iraq. One writer says it's a land that makes it necessary for its inhabitants to be good, right? Throughout the Old Testament, they're always praying for rain. The curse is praying the rain to stop and like, okay, get the idea here. So the abundance signified by the term a land flowing with milk and honey is not inherent in the land, which is what the people thought. They thought, well, here God's creation. This will give us our rest. This will give us our peace. This will give us everything that we want. This, this, the creation will give us everything we need. As long as the Israelites apparently made their living off of animal husbandry, taking only what God offered, it signified the promise of a rich, comfortable life. But once the forests were cleared and the people settled and started working the land, the term becomes a warning. A warning. Don't, don't let every... 
I'm not sure if God was saying that we or they had to go back to a nomadic herding lifestyle as opposed to being farmers. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he was saying that is that they needed to look to the, and worship the creator and not the creation. And, and we still make that same mistake. It's as if God were saying to the Israelites, when you live in the houses that you did not build and drink from wells that you did not dig, and once you've tamed the wild land that naturally flows with milk and honey, don't get cocky in your blessings. The homes, the wells, the vineyards come exclusively by my hand. So the people, they, they were counting on creation to give them the rest rather than relying on the creator's rest. And so the promised land, like us, right, flows with milk and honey, but only when the Israelites, like us, listen to God, trust God, and obey God. By itself, the land, again, like us, under its own powers, the land is rather barren. See, there's, there's, there's like a physical thing going on, but there's also the spiritual thing going on too. Kind of got to look at this at both levels here. Second thing about the promised land. Rest is promised and delivered. I'm going to say this very carefully because this, this is where I'm actually arriving at where I want to arrive. So if you've been sleeping, wake up. Here we go. Rest is promised and delivered, but some never entered into that rest. Now catch this. They entered and inherited the land, but they never experienced what God actually wanted them to experience in the land, and that was his rest. They thought the land was the rest. And, then, and if they it watered it and irrigated it, everything, they could take charge. They could control everything, and they could build up wealth, and then it would get greedy, and then all sorts of crazy things start happening. They never entered into the rest. This is in Hebrews chapter 4. New Testament. Jumping here. The writer, therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest. A lot of them did not enter that rest. And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, they didn't trust God. God again set a certain day, calling it today. Today. The promise isn't expired. This promise is still open. You remember in, back in Joshua, God said, I will never let my people enter. I am so mad at them. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's talking about the physical rest, but the, but the God rest that he wants, that, that promise is still open. right? You don't have to physically go to Israelite to get God's rest. You can get it right here in Richland, in the Tri-Cities. God's rest. The writer of the Hebrews is explaining how some had missed out on the promised rest, but if they trusted God, they could still get in on the promised rest that their ancestors had missed out on. But to enter into that rest, God's rest, they would have to trust in God rather than their own designs. Right? They'd have to be comfortable in a land, a wild land flowing with milk and honey, spiritually speaking. Right? I saw a quote from Elon Musk, cleaned it up a bit. There was a phrase in there that wasn't acceptable. About the danger of living in our comfort zone. Some of you might have seen this quote, and you'll know what I cut. Comfort is a drug, he says. It's addictive. Give a man good food and cheap entertainment, and he'll throw his ambitions right out the window. The comfort zone is where dreams go to die. It's like God knew this. God knew this. I need them on edge. I need them out of my hand. Right? I need them depending on me. 
Because once they get it all figured out, they don't depend on me anymore. They don't even talk to me anymore. <laughs> Few people are ever safe from inside a comfort zone. Great works are seldom undertaken or achieved from a comfort zone. And what I'd like to suggest to you this morning, there are two primary ways that we don't trust God and thus disobey him. Right? Two Christian comfort zones, I guess we're going to call them, that rob us of the milk and the honey, right? That rob us of God's rest. The first enemy of grace of God's rest is antinomianism, meaning basically no law, right? And there's two ways this plays out. One way is the law never applies, right? Christian freedom, this is what Paul spoke of in the book of Romans, means freedom from the law, right? Or for, for Christians, we don't talk about the law, but we do talk about practiced Christian norms, right? We, we're nice to each other. We give to each other. We forgive each other. We love each other, all, you know, all those kind of things. But there is a, there is a, a, a crowd that believes that, nope, that, that we, I, we don't have to follow any, any laws whatsoever. The problem with this, this, this idea is that they fail to see that God's grace sets us free not only from the law as the means by which we're reconciled to him, but also for the law. Let me say that again. We're not only freed, sets us free um, from the law, but he sets us, he reconciles us so that we are free for the law, for doing God's will as correctly as expressed in the Ten Commandments and the rest of the New Testament, right? We're set free not only from the law, but also for the law. I hear this, I hear this phrase, this is, encapsulates this idea. I know God is okay with my sleeping around. He's so full of love and he understands. I just want everyone to know, and I want to brag and boast about just how good of a God he is. That, that's that's works-oriented grace, people. That's not resting in God's grace. That's conjuring up your own. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. God loves me so much because I do all that. That's work. That's, that's work. That's boasting of your, of your sin. That, that, that's work. That's a work-oriented grace. And a second form of antinomianism is the law doesn't apply until one experiences perfect faith. This was known as the Moravian problem. Only after all doubt is removed can one do good works without the risk of good works providing one salvation rather than salvation by grace through faith. Many churches wrongly insist that this, on this gradient of faith to determine whether or not you should participate in communion. They'll stand up, and I, it, this has bothered me for a long time, and I finally figured out why they'll stand and say, you know, unless you have searched your heart and you have found nothing objectionable, only then can you participate in communion. I always thought that was weird. It didn't, it just, it, it seemed odd to me, and again, I understand now why Wesley made this comment. It's by these means of grace, by by picking up scripture, by loving people, all these things that this idea says don't do until you're absolutely sure because then if you do them, you're trying to earn your faith, but faith is only, you know, by faith alone, grace by faith alone, and so works will mess everything up, so don't do any works unless you're absolutely certain, absolutely certain of your salvation. Don't even come near this communion table unless you're absolutely certain. Wesley says no, and I agree, absolutely not, absolutely not. By way of the means of grace, especially communion, people find Christ for the very first time. They recognize, they come face to face with what he did for them. Changes everything. See, this is this idea of, again, a works-oriented grace. You've got to work to be accepted by God. You've got to clean everything up to be accepted by my God. That's not grace. That's not resting. That's 
That's missing God's rest. And antinomianism is alive and well in the church today. It's this idea that grace or the ability to follow the law to be Christ-like is powerless in the face of sin. We have this idea out there. I'm a sinner. I'll always be a sinner. That's my primary identity. God can do nothing to fix that. His Holy Spirit is impotent in the face of my sin. He can't fix me. I have to die first to have anything done. That's a, that's a crazy idea. The law, right? I, I simply cannot follow the law. I, there's, there's, there's no way. I, I can't do good things because I'm such a horrible, horrible, horrible sinner. Again, works-oriented grace. Right? This is not resting in God's rest. This is actually being proud of the fact that I don't have it all together. Therefore, I'm elevating, elevating God, and I, I have to work at being bad almost and, and announcing how horrible I am. That's, that's work. That's a lot of work. Ignores the fact that justification must lead to the sanctification of all life, right? This idea undercuts the fruit of the Spirit as the normal result of God's operative grace, right? If you believe that you will always be a sinner and there's nothing that God's grace can do about that, the fruit of the Spirit is a pipe dream. You might as well forget it. You'll never achieve that. Forget it. It's a lie. Theologian Jeffrey Wainwright says this, the resignation, the resignation to the inevitability of sin risks making it innocuous. Nothing works against sin. We got to do everything. And then finally, this is where I want to land, this, this idea of legalism. So we have antinomianism, no law, but we've also got legalism. Lots of law, lots and lots, lots of law, lots of law. Legalism places a premium on obedience to the law and it's perhaps the subtlest abuse of grace faced by Christians. And this is where I want to, again, this is the one that escapes us. It goes right by us. We don't even notice it in our lives. Legalism is the opposite of antinomianism. A moralist hears God's call to a transformed life, and they seek to obey, right? But when progress becomes a reason, one should be considered a disciple, right? The idolatry of accomplishment sets in. Again, works-oriented grace, not resting in God's rest. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my accomplishments. A life lived by the flesh. This is the older brother syndrome. Judgmental, angry, mean-spirited. You've met people like that. That's works-oriented grace. A second shade of legalism minimizes the place of confession in our lives. In our rightful emphasis, and this is the holiness people, this is us, those of us who believe in entire sanctification, right? Holiness, that we can be made Christ-like. In our rightful emphasis on transformation and the holy life, holy life, we minimize God's grace by minimizing the need of regular confession and forgiveness. We focus on the Big Ten, right? I didn't kill anybody today. I didn't commit adultery. I didn't lie to anybody, so I don't need to go to the altar. I'm good. I don't even need to talk to God. I'm good. I'm good to go. All right, we focus on the biggies, and we see no need for confession or forgiveness, thus minimizing God's grace. Rather than resting in God's grace and trusting his provisions, we work at being perfect. We work at pretending that we don't occasionally struggle. I don't know if you shared this experience with me. When I grew up, there were always altar calls. And I wrongly, I'm fairly certain now, I wrongly believe that those people are going and getting saved every single Sunday. 
What is up with that? Because I thought that's what you went to the altar for. There were two reasons. One, to seek forgiveness for killing somebody, right, or committing adultery. One of the biggies, yeah, you got to go to the altar for that. Or you're in a bad way. You've you got to go down for one of the biggies, right? Otherwise, you went down and got saved. So as I looked at these old, and they're always the old folks, they all go down there, and I'm always thinking, hmm, <laughs> did it not work last week? Or did they kill somebody? And I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm just thinking, this is crazy. Why does the pastor keep doing this? Right? He's just putting them in this horrible, horrible position. And I, this week, it just hit me. I mean, I need to confess. I missed, I missed the boat entirely on this, this idea that if I'm entirely sanctified, I need confession. And if I don't have confession, then I start working at my salvation. I start trying to pretend to be, I present this front that you all think I got it all together or else you won't listen to me each Sunday. I'm not going to tell you. We won't even go there or else you won't listen to me on Sunday. I want to read, I want to close with a passage from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Dan's going to be coming up and he's going to be singing, lead us in a song that just brings us all together. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses, again, 9 through 11. It says this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example, the ancient Israelites, of disobedience. Notice that we can rest as God rested. We don't have to keep working at our salvation. It's already been achieved. The writer uses a unique word, a Greek word here, the Sabbath rest is the only place it occurs in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews. It means that once we believe we've entered into that rest, and there's nothing more to do, right? In fact, we are to rest. We're supposed to stop. Stop trying to gain his favor, right? We're not to work to gain his favor anymore. No more boasting of our sins. No more boasting of our accomplishments. No more having to be good enough to be in his presence. No more working at being perfect and secretly knowing that we fall short. I mean, that's all just hard work. He's saying, look, you can rest in me. Stop it. Rest in my grace. Just believe. Take God's offered milk and honey. It's from his hand. Just believe and trust him. Bow your heads. Father, we want to trust you. We want to, well, we want to abide in you and not in our works. So, Father, this morning, we confess that we haven't done all that we could have done. Father, we make this a regular part of our worship service, confession. Of, and then after confessing, you, you point out, here's, here's how we can fix this. Here's how you can address that need that you ignored last week. We, we, we can still do this. So, 
Father, thank you for this gift of confession that enables me to rest in your grace. I don't have to do all this on my own. It's already been done. I just have to abide in you. Thank you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.